1 Corinthians one twenty seven declares, God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Here is a perfect example of how God uses the world's foolish things to confound the wise. On an episode of Star Talk with Neil deGrasse Tyson, he explains how gravity affects time. Tyson explains that science has discovered that time is impacted by gravity. This discovery is of significant importance because it means that the scientific methods used to determine the universe's age are incorrect. He explains that before science can determine the universe's age, it needs to determine gravity's effect on time and consider any variances in gravity throughout the universe. What this means is that it is possible for the universe to be less than 10,000 years old and concurrently appear to be several million years old. If Mr. Tyson had started with scripture, he would have already known that the universe is relatively young and that God created the world with functional maturity. Reverend Tim Keller, former pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, author of The Reasons for God and the Prodigal God, denies the literalness of Genesis 1. Instead, he has embraced evolutionary theory. In his book, Reasons for God, he states, I think Genesis 1 has the earmarks of poetry and is therefore a song about the wonder and meaning of God's creation. For the record, I think God guided some kind of process of natural selection, and yet I reject the concept of evolution as an all-encompassing theory. Ladies and gentlemen, his statement is nothing more than theistic evolution. When asked to clarify his statement, Reverend Keller responded, How could there have been death before Adam and Eve fell? The answer is, I don't know. But all I know is, didn't animals eat bugs? Didn't bugs eat plants? There must have been death. In other words, when you realize, oh wait, this is really complicated. Now let's be clear. Reverend Keller is confused about death. Nowhere does the Bible state that there was no death before the fall. The Bible states that before the fall, humanity and other nephesh hayah creatures, i.e. vertebrates, did not die. As far as plants and insects are concerned, they were created to die. God programmed various types of cell death, such as skin cells, to die, which would be necessary for multicellular life. The bacteria that causes digestion dies every second. And so to buy into a form of evolution because he does not understand some basic theological and scientific facts regarding death, simply shows how ignorant Reverend Keller truly is regarding theology and science. Christian beware, Reverend Keller is not to be trusted. The literalness of Genesis 1 is only the beginning of the theological nonsense in which he finds himself entangled. Now Genesis 1 presents the steps God took in creation. First, God took steps to form that which was tohu and bohu, unformed and unfilled, and then proceeded to take that which he formed and filled it. Thus, on days one through three, God forms the creation, and on days four through six, God fills creation. Consider the following breakdown of the creative narrative. Day one, God forms time, space, matter, darkness, and light. Genesis 1, 1 to 5. Day four, God fills space with sun, moon, and stars, Genesis 1, 14 and 19. Day two, God forms the expanse or atmosphere, Genesis 1, 6 to 8. Day five, 
God fills the sky with birds and the water with fish and sea creatures. Genesis 1, 20 to 23. Day three, God forms the dry land, vegetation, plants, and trees. Genesis 1, 9 to 13. And day six, God fills the land with mammals, reptiles, and humanity. Genesis 1, 24 to 31. Before considering days two and five, a question needs to be answered regarding the creation of angels. Now, it's already been established that God created all things, including angels, within six 24-hour solar days. The gap theory, which teaches that Satan's fall corrupted God's original creation, causing God to create the current creation, has been debunked. So when exactly did God create the angels? Angels are supernatural created beings that have been granted immortality. Psalm 148, 1-5 states, Praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise Him in the heights, praise Him all His angels, praise Him all His hosts, praise Him sun and moon, praise Him all stars of light, praise Him highest heavens and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. Here creation and the angels are commanded to praise God. The inclusion of angels amongst the various parts of creation in Psalm 148 underscores that angels were created as part of the six days of creation. Psalm 148 is also clear that the primary duty of angels is to praise and worship God. Such worship is demonstrated in Isaiah 6.3. There the prophet records and one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. Though not mentioned in Genesis 1, the creation of angels is referred to in Job 38, 4-7 and Psalm 104, 2-5. Job 38, 4-7 states, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements? Since you know who or who stretched the line on it. On what were its bases sunk? Or laid? who laid its, found, its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now in Job 38, the morning stars and the sons of God are titles for angels. According to Job 38, the angels were rejoicing when the foundation of the earth was laid. The foundation of the earth refers to day three, when God set the boundaries of the sea and brought forth the dry land. Psalm 104, 2-5 says, Covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. He lays the beam of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. He makes the wind his messengers, flaming fire his ministers. He established the earth upon its foundations so that it will not totter forever and ever. Paul interestingly identifies the winds and flaming fire in Psalm 104 as angels. He says in Hebrews 1, 7, And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? Now, Psalm 104 follows a chronological progression. Covering yourself with light refers to day one. Stretching out heaven, as well as the mention of the clouds and the wind, refer to day two. Establish the earth upon its foundation, refer to day three. Now, notice, following the descriptions of day two, one and two, but before the description of day three, there is the mention of angels, i.e. the winds and flaming fire. Thus, it is evident that the angelic creatures were created before day three, sometime on day 
two. Beginning with day three, they begin praising God for his creative acts. Now again, Genesis 1-1 to 31 reveals how God created from unformed and unfilled to formed and filled. Here in Genesis 1, 6 to 8, God forms the heavens. Day two, God forms the heavens. Now, the first creative work of day two is separating the waters into two parts. Let's read verses six through eight. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, a second day. At the end of day one, the earth was covered with a primeval world ocean, i.e. the deep, which the Holy Spirit intended to form and fill. Here on day two, the forming begins. By cleaving the waters into the waters above and the waters below, God shaped the earth into a spherical object. Isaiah 40, 21 to 22 declares, Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. The term circle, hug, means to draw a circle as with a compass and can be translated as a sphere. Proverbs 8, 27 and 29 provides a vivid description of God's creative acts between day two and three. It states, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set for the sea its boundary so that the waters would not transgress his commands, when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Notice that God shaped the earth into a sphere, made the skies, i.e. the atmosphere above, fixed the springs of the deep, and fixed the boundaries of the seas. Long before science discovered the earth was round, Scripture had already declared it so. The New American Standard Bible 1995 update correctly translates the Hebrew term rakiah as expanse. The term firmament came about through its use in the Latin Vulgate. The Latin translation of rachia as firmamentum was influenced by Egyptian theories of a stone vault that held up the waters above the earth. Biblically, the term rachia or expanse, denotes the idea of stretched out thin layers. Job 37, 18 states, Can you with him spread rachia out the skies? strong as a molten mirror. God called this expanse the heavens, Samayim. The scripture uses three other verbs along with rachia to describe God's work of stretching out or spreading out the heavens. Those verbs are nata, mata, and tapap. Job 9.8, who alone stretches nata out the heavens, Samayim, and tramples down the waves of the sea. Psalm 104, verse 2, covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching nata out heavens, samayim, like a tent curtain. Isaiah 40, verse 2, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches nata out the heavens, samayim, like a curtain, and spreads mata, the mount like a tent to dwell in. 
Isaiah 44, 24, thus says the Lord, your redeemer and the one who formed you from the womb, I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching Natah out the heavens, Samaim, by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. Isaiah 48, 13, surely my hand founded the earth and my right hand spread to pop out the heavens, Samaim. When I call to them, they stand together. Now, an examination of these terms clearly demonstrates that the expanse refers to the heavens. Now, it needs to be noted that the Hebrew and Greek terms for heaven are usually plural. Paul says in Hebrews 4.14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, plural, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. The Hebrew term samayim, i.e. heavens, is always plural. Heavens is plural because there are at least three heavens. Three heavens. First, there is the divine heaven. We might call this the third heaven where God dwells. Acts 7.55, being full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Okay, so Stephen sees heaven. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And Hebrews 8, 1, now the main point is what has been said is this, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. All right, so we need to understand here that where God is, where Jesus is, is heaven, particularly the third heaven or the divine heaven. Second, there is a stellar heaven. We might refer to this as outer space. Deuteronomy 4.19, And beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and moon and the stars and all the host of heaven and be drawn away and worship them and serve them those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the people under the whole heaven. Matthew 24, 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, this stellar heaven is also referred to as highest heavens. First Kings 8, 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. Deuteronomy 10, 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Now, the highest heavens cannot refer to the third heaven because as 1 Kings 8.27 reveals, God cannot be contained in that stellar heaven. Yet we know that he dwells within the third heaven. So we have a divine heaven, we have a stellar heaven, but thirdly, we have an atmospheric heaven. An atmospheric heaven. The atmospheric heavens are composed of stretched out thin layers of gases around planet Earth, just as the scripture states. Now, the atmosphere can be partitioned into five prevalent layers, beginning at the surface of the Earth and extending to the stellar heaven. The primary layers are as follows. So from zero to seven miles, from 
Planet Earth, seven miles up, we have what's called the troposphere. From mile seven to mile 31, again, going up, we have the stratosphere. From mile 31 to mile 50, the mesosphere. From mile 50 to mile 440, we have the thermosphere. And then from mile 440 to 6200, we have the exosphere. And all of these layers form the expanse or the rachi or the firmament. Each of these layers are separated by pauses or boundary. So we actually have several secondary levels or layers, such as the ozone layer, the ionosphere, the homosphere, and the heterosphere. God created the atmosphere. He created this um, uh, expanse to protect the earth, to protect the, 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 the things, the creatures, the, the plants, the life, humanity on the earth from the harsh conditions of space, meteors and deadly ultraviolet radiation from the sun, and also to provide the air we breathe, as well as helping to regulate planetary temperatures. Now, it is this atmospheric heaven where the birds of the sky fly and the clouds gather to produce rain. In Genesis 6, 7, the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from the man to animals, to creeping things, and to birds of the sky, literally the atmospheric heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Matthew 6, 26, look at the birds of the air, that is the atmospheric heavens, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Again, also James 5.18. Then he prayed again in the sky, that is the atmospheric heavens, poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. Now, let's pause here for a moment and see what the Bible has to say about clouds. Because notice the phrases, the waters above and the waters below in Genesis 1.6. Now, the waters below are those waters below the heavens that are going to be formed in the seas on day three. The waters above refer to the water vapor that gathers in the atmosphere and forms clouds and then falls to earth as some form of precipitation. And contrary to this widespread theory amongst Christians that there was a canopy or dome of water above the earth after creation, there was none. Again, there was no canopy or dome of water above the earth after creation. You see, this theory purports that God gathered the waters above to form a canopy around the earth, producing a greenhouse effect, which would explain the long lifespans of the antediluvian world. Later, this same canopy collapsed, providing the rain for the flood of Genesis 1-6. Now, friends, let's be honest and let's be clear. There are several problems with this theory. These are the kind of theories that Christians purport that make science look at the Bible and look at Christians as being ridiculous. All right, consider this, number one. Problem number one. The theory contradicts the clear teaching of Scripture. Psalm 148, verses 1 through 4, written after the flood, implies that the waters above still exist. The psalmist says, praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the heights, praise him all his angels, praise him all his host, praise him sun and moon, praise him all stars of light, 
praise him highest heavens and the waters that are above the heavens. Furthermore, Psalm 148 verse 5 to 6 states that God decreed the heavens, the angels, the sun, the moon, the stars, the waters above to last forever and ever. Again, the psalmist says, let them praise the name of the Lord for he commanded and they were created. He has also established them forever and ever. He has made a decree which will not pass away. So if the waters above refer to a canopy that collapsed, it didn't last forever and God failed to keep his word. God is a liar. If his canopy theory is true. A second problem. Number two. The canopy theory does not pass the scientific method. Again, the canopy theory does not pass the scientific method. This theory claims that a water vapor canopy would protect the earth from harmful ultraviolet rays. In reality, water vapor does not provide sufficient shielding against ultraviolet rays. You can get sunburned as easily on a sunny day as on a cloudy day. Third problem, number three. A water canopy would have cooked earth rather than provide a perfect environment. Water vapor does absorb infrared radiation. The absorption of infrared by water vapors in the atmosphere provides anywhere between 66 and 95% of the greenhouse effect on the earth. Hence, a canopy of water thick enough to contain enough water to flood the earth would have cooked the earth. So if not a canopy of water, then what is meant by the waters above? The water above are very simply clouds. When God separated the waters, he created clouds. Job 38, 8 to 10 states, Or who enclosed the sea with the doors, when bursting forth it went out from the womb, when I made a cloud its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and I placed boundaries on it, and set a bolt and doors. Now, we need to understand here that the creation of clouds demands then the creation of what we call the hydrologic cycle, the hydrologic cycle, or more commonly known as the water cycle. Now, the hydrologic cycle is the continuous circulation of water in the atmosphere. Three major processes of this cycle are evaporation, condensation, precipitation. Evaporation is caused primarily by the transfer of heat energy from the sun upon water. In evaporation, the water changes from a liquid into a gas, i.e. water vapor. Condensation occurs as the water vapor settles onto aerosols, such as salt and dust particles, and forms droplets of water. The water droplets stick together, forming clouds. Precipitation happens when the clouds grow too heavy and fall to earth in the form of rain, hail, snow, or sleet. And my friends, scripture testifies to the divine creation of the hydrologic cycle. Job 36, 27 to 28 says, For he, that is the Lord, draws up the drops of water. They distill rain from the midst, which clouds pour down. They drip upon man abundantly. Notice the phrase, he draws up drops of water. There's the process of evaporation. He distills rain from the mist. This is the process of condensation. And then the mist forms as water vapors join aerosols to form water droplets. Hence, the clouds pour rain. They drip is the process of precipitation. Right there in scripture. Now, if clouds are made up of water droplets and the water is heavier than air, why do they not immediately fall back to the earth? 
The offset of the cloud's weight by air weight is called barometric pressure. Barometric pressure. In fact, a column of air, one inch square and as tall as the atmosphere, weighs about 14 pounds at sea level. While Evangelista Torricelli discovered barometric pressure in A.D. 1643, over 3,500 years ago, God's word testified that air has weight. Job 28, 24 to 25 states, For he looked to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens when he imparted weight to the wind and meted out the waters by measure. So the idea that it did not rain until the flood may be widely popular, but it is not, again, it is not sustainable by Scripture. First, Scripture says that all things are in the heavens and on the earth and in the sea and below the sea were created within the six days of creation. Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth. And that includes rain, lightning, wind. Psalm 65, 9-10 says, You, Lord, visit the earth and cause it to overflow. You, Lord, greatly enrich it. The stream of God is full of water. You prepare their grain, for thus you prepare the earth. You water its furrows abundantly. You settle its riches. You soften it with showers. You bless its growth. Now, let's notice, let's take note of some important terms here. You water. Rawa means to drench or pour liquid onto in abundance. Showers, rabibim, in Psalm 65, refers to a gentle rain that properly waters the earth for growth. So again, the idea that it did not rain until the flood, widely popular but not sustainable by Scripture. First, Scripture says that all things in the heavens and on earth, the sea, below the sea, were created within the six days of creation. Second, When God rested on the seventh day, he rested from his creative acts and took up a new work of conservation. Genesis 2.2 states, By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. That was it. God finished the creating work that he accomplished during the six days of creation. God is not creating any new physical form elements. Instead, God is sustaining or conserving creation. Paul confirms this in Colossians 1.17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, God's work of conservation uses the various physical processes which he created to recycle and retask pre-existing matter and energy according to his will. Thus, God did not create rain at the time of the flood. God created the processes to produce rain at creation. Again, clouds can only hold so much water before dispersing precipitation. Third, Scripture only states that it had not rained during the six days of creation. Again, the Scripture only states that it had not rained during the six days of creation. Genesis 2, 4 to 6 states, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field nor was yet in the earth. No plant on the field had yet been sprouted for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth and there was no man to cultivate the ground but a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. 
Now, Genesis 2, 4 to 6 is a summary of God's creative work on days 1 through 3. The phrase, no shrub was yet in the earth, sets the context as being before day 3 when God created vegetation. Up to this point, God had not sent rain upon the earth. Instead, a mist watered the surface of the ground when it appeared on day three. This mist was created by evaporation and condensation due to the temperature change between night and day. Proof that God created the hydrologic cycle on day two. As to when it rained, Genesis 2.5 establishes when the rain began. The text states that it had not rained because there was no man to cultivate the ground. Therefore, once the man was created and began to work, what happened? It began to rain. Again, this idea that it didn't rain until the flood is popular but not sustainable because number one, Scripture says all things were created in the six days of creation, and that includes rain the hydrologic cycle. Second, God rested on the seventh day and rested from his creative works and he took up a new work called a work of conservation. He's not creating anything new. Three, we said that scripture only states that it had not rained during the six days of creation. Now, number four, the fourth reason why this no rain theory doesn't hold up. God told Noah that it would rain 40 days and nights. Genesis 7, 4, for after seven more days, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. Now, there is nothing grammatically or linguistically that would imply that it had never rained before. God simply said that it would rain globally, nonstop, for 40 days and nights. Now, that's new, if you will. A global rain event lasting 40 days and nights was new. One cannot argue, however, that because Scripture does not mention rain after creation and before the flood, that the rain didn't fall. Claiming there was no rain because the scripture mentions no rain is an argument from silence, which is a logical fallacy. Silence is never sufficient proof for something or against something. Now, friends, it is interesting that God does not close the second day by declaring it good. And the reason is that God's purpose for separating the waters was not yet complete. God waits until day three to form the waters below in the sea and allow the dry land to appear, which explains why God declares the third day to be good twice. God declares it good after forming the waters below in the seas and then declaring it good after making vegetation. So friends, on day two, God creates the heavens, separating the waters above from the waters below. Like the atmosphere that separates the waters, sin separates you and I from God. Isaiah 59.2 states, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, you have to understand this verse is about us, all of us. Ephesians 2.12 states, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, and having no hope and without God in the world. You see, in our pre-salvific state, we were filled with no hope 
We were without God. Why? Because of our iniquities, our sin, our lawlessness, our transgressions. They have separated so that us from God, so that God cannot look upon us. He has no fellowship with us. But I praise God that the separation that exists between God and humanity can be removed with repentance and God's merciful forgiveness. You see, the waters above are a picture of eternal life with God. We only receive that water, that eternal life, if we can somehow bridge the separation. And the only means of bridging the separation is to repent of your sin and believe the gospel. What is the gospel? That all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but God sent his only begotten son into the world to save sinners. And how did he do that? By dying on a cross, by shedding his blood and dying, by being buried in a tomb, but then on the third day being resurrected from the dead. Repent of your sin and believe the gospel. Believe that God's son, Jesus Christ, came to earth, died, shed his blood for you and me to cover our sin, was buried and rose again the third day. If we truly repent, genuinely repent, and believe the gospel, then we'll cross that separation. And we'll, we'll no longer exist in the water below, but now we'll enjoy the water above. We will have eternal life with God in the heavens. It also is interesting that the waters above will descend upon the earth bringing life. And in much the same way, God's word, the gospel, has come down and granted life. I close with Isaiah 55, verse 10 to 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from the heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing it what, which, what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. We need to be praising God that his word does not return void. When the gospel rains down upon humanity, it will generate a response. Either it is going to be received or it is going to be rejected. But let's make clear, the message's reception or rejection is not a problem with the message, but with the type of soil that it falls upon. If the ground of the heart is stony, it is going to reject the gospel. And if the ground of the heart is soft, it will receive the gospel. May each of you listening consider what kind of heart you have. Have you received the gospel? Did you have a soft heart? You heard the word, the word of the gospel rained down upon you and you gladly received it? Or do you have a hard heart? The rain of the gospel has fallen down upon you, but you have rejected it. Friend, make no mistake. Your reception guarantees you a place in heaven, but your rejection will guarantee you a place in hell. Father God, Lord, as we come before you, we give you the thanks and the praise through Jesus' name, through his character, that we can come before you and we can enter into your throne room with boldness to find grace and help in our time of need. And Lord, do we ever need you. Father, we need you. As we look at the creation narrative, of, as we just take a moment to look at day two and consider all that you accomplished in that one day, we're astounded at your power. But Father, it also reminds us of the great gulf that exists between us and you, that great separation. 
And Father, I pray if there's someone here today that's been listening, that perhaps, Father, they've come to that place of acknowledging that there is still a gulf between you and them. There is still a, 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 an exp- there, there, there is still a separation between fellowship. They have no fellowship. They're, they're still living in the waters below. And when, Father, they're wanting to live in the water above. Father, I thank and praise you that those of us who have received the engraft word and have been saved by it because we've repented and believed the gospel, that, Lord, I thank you that you have rained the gospel upon us and, and, and our heart has received it with gladness. Father, I ask and pray that we would not uh, be so uh, trifling with that message, but that, Lord, we would live it out daily in our lives. Father, I pray for those who, are, who have listened, Father, that have confessed that they're, they're, they're not one of yours, they're not your child, uh, they, they've, they're still living in that water below, there's still that separation between you and them. I pray that, Father, today they might acknowledge themselves as sinful, they might acknowledge their sin, they might confess it, forsake it, repent of it, Father, and that they would in turn believe the gospel. I pray that you would take those hard, stony hearts that you would break them, that you might smash them, and that you might replace them with a heart of flesh, ready and willing to receive the gospel, ready and willing to repent of their sin. And Lord, to you we commit all these things, and we ask and pray that you would be glorified in us today and tomorrow and for all time. Amen.